Well, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21. And uh, when you get to Matthew 21, you can kind of keep your mark in that place, and then you can go to Isaiah 53 and kind of be ready to go there, because that's where we're going to actually land this morning. Amen. Today's Palm Sunday, as Pastor Linda mentioned, Palm Sunday. It's an awesome time that we kick off the week of passion, the passion of our Lord. And um, as Pastor Linda mentioned, Friday night is our Good Friday service. This is a really important service for us who are Christ followers. This is where we remember what Jesus did on that, on that Friday. We call it Good Friday because it's good for us. What Jesus did on the cross is good for us, amen? And He bore our sins and our guilt and and suffered the wrath of God in, in our place. And we'll be celebrating communion, very special communion time on Good Friday. So really want to encourage you to come and be a part of that worship service. Amen. And then, of course, Easter Sunday. Hallelujah. Resurrection Sunday. And uh, we really hope that you'll invite some friends, some family members, some neighbors. People will come to church on Easter. How many believe that? Yes? People will come to church uh, all they need is a little invite from a friend or a neighbor who cares about them and who loves them. Amen. All right, so we're in Matthew chapter 21. Did you bring your Bibles today? Yeah. Got to bring your Bibles, right? Why do you bring your Bible to church? Yeah. That's right. Don't trust me. You got to trust the Word of God, all right? You never know. I could go off the deep end someday, right? You got to bring the Word of God and make sure I'm giving you the straight and narrow. Matthew chapter 21, verse 7. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him, Jesus, on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved. Amen. That's, that's quite a shaking in the city, isn't it? All, did you see that? All the city was moved. This wasn't just a few people, right? This, the whole city was moved by what was happening here as Jesus entered, saying, Who is this? The multitude said, This is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Father, we thank you for this day as we commemorate the entry of our Lord into Jerusalem, beginning that week of passion leading up to the cross and the resurrection. Lord, I pray, God, for the anointing of the Holy Spirit today that you'll help me to present, Lord, that which the Spirit wants to say to us, and Lord, that you'll anoint our ears and our hearts to receive, Lord, the truth that you have for us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Palm Sunday, it's, um, it's such an important day. It commemorates this event when, when Jesus publicly revealed Himself as the long-awaited Messiah, where He accepted, He received that praise and that worship that was meant for the Messiah. Now, some might ask, you may be unfamiliar with this, what does that mean that Jesus revealed himself, and received those accolades of Messiah. 
Well, you need to understand something about the Bible. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the Bible is not one book. It's actually a collection of books. 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. The Bible was written by over uh, 40 different authors spread over three continents over a period of about 1,500 years. And in the Old Testament, one of the, the main themes is of the Messiah, this Messiah who would come, who would conquer and judge all that is evil, and who would restore this fallen world to its created order under the authority of God. But before the Messiah would do that, before the Messiah would bring the rebellious nations of the earth under the judgment of God, he first had to make a way for sinners to be saved and to be spared from the judgment of God that would come. And this is what the New Testament is all about. It tells us that the Messiah, before he comes as the conquering king, must first come as a savior to carry our sins in his body, to suffer the wrath, the justice of God on our behalf, and restore us to right standing with God. Now, when we read the scripture here in Matthew 21, at first glance, it seems that the people there love Jesus, that they're honoring him in an appropriate way as the Messiah. But in reality, their honor of Jesus comes under a false pretense. Because these people here, the Jewish people, they were not looking for a suffering Savior. In fact, they had believed, they had been taught that they didn't need salvation from sin. They believed that their salvation came from being Abraham's seed by observing Mosaic law, keeping all of the, the religious traditions. They were looking for the Messiah to be a conquering king, to restore Judah to its former glory, to drive the Romans out of Jerusalem and defeat all the enemies of the Jews. They were focused on those depictions of the Messiah as the coming king who would come at the end of all things and restore the world to God's original order. And this is actually what the Jewish people still believe today. Yes, a Messiah is coming, they'll say, but he will be a conqueror. He will restore Israel to glory and, and, and power. But what our Jewish friends miss and what we know to be true is that the Messiah must first come as a suffering Savior to rescue man from the judgment and the wrath of God that is to come. Which brings us now to Isaiah chapter 53. Go to Isaiah 53 if you're not already there. Isaiah 53, I'm sure that most of us have heard of it, it's one of the most significant chapters in the whole Bible. The reason why Isaiah 53 is important is it provides us with historical and prophetic proof that Jesus Christ is the prophesied, promised Messiah, the Son of God who died for the sins of the world. Now understand, Isaiah, he was a prophet. He lived about 700 years before Jesus would even be born. 
And he made this prophecy, which we know as Isaiah 53, about 680 years before Jesus would actually go to the cross. It describes in prophetic, specific detail how the Messiah would die, why the Messiah would die, and what his death was intended to accomplish. And it's a prophecy that was fulfilled in the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Which brings us to verse 1. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. He begins with a question. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's a question. Isaiah is about to lay out this, this prophecy of the Messiah, but he says, who will believe this? Who's going to believe this? And the simple answer is this, not many. That's why he asked the question, not many. In fact, Jesus said that there would be few who would actually believe and trust in what the Messiah would do. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is speaking here, and he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Isaiah says, Who's going to believe this report? And Jesus answers the question and he says, there will be few. Why few? Because I think as most of us really understand, not everyone really wants the truth. I mean, the truth. You hear what I'm saying? The, everybody say the truth. See, we're living in a day when everyone wants their truth right? And people today believe that their version of truth is better than God's version of truth. And when God's version of truth, when God's truth, which is the only truth, does not align with their truth, then they reject God's truth. And that's what we're seeing today. Just as the Jews rejected Jesus because they were looking for a different version of the Messiah. They were not looking for a suffering Savior. They were looking for a reigning King who would come in power and strength and glory. Who will believe, Isaiah says? Not many then and not many now. But let me just say this. Don't be among those who disregard the truth. Be among the few. Everybody say the few. Be among the few, not the many. Amen? Hallelujah. Verse 2. He says, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, Isaiah is saying when he comes, when the Messiah comes, he's, he's nothing really special to look at. You wouldn't look at him and be impressed. It wouldn't be somebody that you would desire. In fact, he goes on to say he's as common as a dry root growing out of the ground. As common as something you would trip on walking down a path through the woods. We see pictures, you know, today of, uh, 
of Jesus. And uh, a lot of the pictures that we've often seen of Jesus, he looks more like a, a Midwestern American. You know, or a, a surfer from California. You know, he's got blonde hair and he's got blue eyes and he's six foot four. He's, you know, he's a white guy, basically. But let me explain something. Jesus was not a white guy. Hello? People say, you know, Christianity... You know, well, that's, that's for the white people. That's the white persons. Christianity is not a white man's religion. Jesus was not a white guy. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was born in Judea to Jewish parents, raised in Nazareth. He would look more like a common Middle Eastern young male. Dark skin, black hair, brown eyes, no form, no con- just a regular guy. Nothing to, be, to impress us, nothing that we would, you know... No beauty, Isaiah said, that we would desire him. Now the Jews, they had a preconceived notion of what the Messiah would be like. That he would come in strength and power and glory. That he would have this prominence about him. He would be born of of great pedigree and, and have privilege and be someone that is impressive. Because they were looking at all of those prophecies about a king who would come in power. And they disregarded the prophecies foretelling an average, unattractive, unappealing, suffering servant who would die on a cross as an offering for sin. That didn't fit their narrative, so they rejected that. How many hear what I'm saying? It didn't fit their narrative, so they rejected it. Now you might say, well, how can people just disregard scriptures according to their own personal preferences. Well, we do it all the time, even today. Ask people today, even people who call themselves Christian, ask people if they believe in a heaven and a hell. There was a a recent Barna survey that revealed that 76% of Americans believe in heaven, but only 32% of Americans believe in a literal hell that is an actual place of torment and suffering. And of those who believe in a literal hell, only 1% said that they think they'll go to hell. Which is interesting because close to 65% of those same people said most of their friends will probably go to hell. (laughs) What's the point? This is what people do. Both the Jews back then with the Scriptures and today about the Messiah and Christians. People who claim to be Christ followers being very selective in their beliefs about heaven and hell. Sure, we believe in heaven, but we ignore the Scriptures that talk about a hell. Even though Jesus in the Gospel spoke about hell much more than He spoke about heaven. But the reality is this, Mission Church, and those watching online, there is a heaven and there is a hell. How do you know that? Because the Bible is very clear on this point. Jesus is very clear on this point. The apostles are very clear on this point. There is a heaven, there is a hell. Even though we might try to ignore, downplay, or avoid some of those scriptures, Just as there was a Savior who suffered and died 
despite the facts that the Jews disregard and ignore those scriptures, there is a place called hell that is very real today. In fact, the very reason he suffered on that cross is because he does not want anyone to go to that place called hell. That's why he took our sins. Look at verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. He was despised and rejected, talking about Jesus. Now, there were times when, when he was loved, as long as he was providing the loaves and, and the fish, and he was healing people. But when he confronted people with the reality of what it meant to be his disciple, and carry that cross personally, the Bible says that many left him and didn't follow him anymore. In fact, no one stood with him at the cross. He was alone. Even after he rose from the dead, and thousands of people, they had been healed by him, had been fed by him, had pursued him and chased after him and thronged him while he was alive. After he rose from the dead, we read of only 120 people that actually obeyed his command to go to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. After three years of miraculous ministry, healing people, casting out demons, raising people from the dead, he himself raising from the dead, only 120 people are following him. Why was he despised and rejected? He was despised and rejected because he was not what they expected or even wanted. They wanted a deliverer who would force the Romans, the Romans out of their country. So when he was arrested, when he was beaten, when he was nailed to that cross, Jesus was a big disappointment. They turned against him. He was despised and rejected because the religious elite despised him and hated him and were jealous and threatened by him. The religious elite turned the people against him so that that same crowd that was waving the palm saying, Hosanna, save us, Lord. That same crowd, just a few days later, would be also shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Because he turned out to not be the Messiah that they wanted. He was despised and rejected because that was God's plan. Jesus was not a victim. Everybody say, not a victim. He was not a victim. He had to die according to the sovereign will of God to be an offering for the sins of the world. Which brings us to verse 4. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. At the time of His crucifixion, most believe that he was cursed by God. He was abandoned by God. A blasphemer who, who, in his teachings, made himself equal to God. And therefore now is a victim of God's wrath. Left to be tortured by the Romans. But Jesus was not a victim. Amen? 
And Jesus was not cursed by God. It says He has borne, He has borne our griefs. The Hebrew word, therefore, born means that He took them up. He took them up like you pick something up and you carry something, right? He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. It suggests a, a willingness of His own volition that He decided for Himself to do this. No one did it to him. Are you hearing what I'm saying? We talk about the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the Romans and the people saying crucify him. But Jesus was not a victim. No one did this to him. He told the Pharisees who conspired with Pilate to hang him on the cross. He told them in John chapter 10. He said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down myself. Hallelujah. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. This is our Savior. He said to his disciples in Matthew 26, he said, Do you not think that I could not now pray to the Father, and he would provide more than 12 legions of angels? A Roman legion had a thousand soldiers. Jesus could have just called out to the Father and said, I'm not doing it anymore, Father. Deliver me from this. He could have said that. And he would have had 12,000 angels at his disposal. 12,000. Jesus was no victim. Pilate didn't put him on the cross. The Romans didn't put him on the cross. The Pharisees didn't put him on the cross. The Jews didn't put him on the cross. It wasn't Pilate. It wasn't Herod. It wasn't even Judas. It wasn't the Sanhedrin. He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. He took those 39 lashes. He carried that cross beam up Golgotha's hill. He went to that cross. It wasn't the three nails that held him there. It was his love for you and and for me that kept him on that cross why look at the next verse he was wounded for our transgressions he was bruised for our iniquities the chastisement for our peace was upon him by his stripes we're healed let me explain this verse by connecting it to another verse in second corinthians Chapter 5, where it says, For He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Hallelujah. It's so amazing how Isaiah 53 is fulfilled in specific detail through the death and burial of Jesus Christ. It means that He, God the Father, made Jesus to be sin. What does that mean? Made Jesus to be sin. He made Jesus to be sin in the sense that He, the Father, treated Jesus as if He had committed every sin that has ever been committed by every person who ever lived, though in fact He had committed none of them. Hanging on the cross, Jesus was holy and harmless and undefiled. Hanging on the cross, He was a spotless lamb. He was never for a split second a sinner. He was sinless. He was perfect. He was God the Son. But God the Father is treating Him as though He had lived my life. 
God punished Jesus for my sin. Jesus took the blame for all of my sins and for your sins as well. This is exactly what happened on that cross. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. God punished Jesus for my sin. And then he turns right around and now treats me as though I had lived the life of Jesus. Innocent, holy, and blameless. This is the great doctrine of the vicarious substitutionary atonement. It's a fancy phrase for what the Bible simply calls the gospel. Everybody say the gospel. The good news that when God looked at the cross, he saw you and your sin. And when he looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And what you get, what I get, what we get is complete forgiveness. We get covering by the righteousness of Christ. Isn't that awesome? Theologians call it the great transfer. He took our guilt. We took his righteousness. Hallelujah. Isn't that awesome? This is the distinctive element of the gospel of Christianity. People will say, you believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? And I say, well, what other way is there? What other way deals with my sin and my guilt before God? Because every other way, every other religion is simply man's futile attempt to make himself good enough for God through his own works. That's what religion is. It's man trying to make himself good enough for God. It's man trying to work his way to heaven. Look at Islam. To enter paradise, you have to observe the five pillars of Islam. You have to profess a faith in Allah. You have to pray regularly. You have to give alms. You have to do fasting. You have to take a pilgrimage to Mecca. It's works. It's all works. It's what we do to make ourselves acceptable. Even Judaism, to be accepted by God, you've got to keep the law. You've got to observe the commands. You've got to keep the religious rituals. It's all about works. Hinduism, to attain higher reincarnation, you, you, you've got to appease your particular family idols by erecting a shrine in your home and offering incense to them every morning and every night. It's all about works. Buddhism, to achieve nirvana, you've got to keep what's called the eightfold path. Right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Just do all the right works and you're good enough to get in. <laughs> I give up on that one. The issue, listen, the issue is not making ourselves good enough through good works. The issue is we are sinners. And no amount of good works will remove the fact that we have the guilt of sin staining our souls. The issue is that we are guilty before a holy God who cannot accept guilt no matter what we do. And not only can He not accept guilt, He must punish guilt. That's what makes him holy. That's what makes him just. But this is why Isaiah says the chastisement for our peace was upon him. 
The only way that we can have peace with a holy, perfect, righteous God is if someone takes our chastisement, our punishment for us. The Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every day. God hates sin. He's angry at sin. It's a rebellion, a defi- it's, it's, it's defiance of his, of his rule of law. And he must punish sin. There must be chastisement. There must be punishment for sin. The wrath of God must be born against sin. But the chastisement for our peace was upon him. Hallelujah. At Christmas, we read how the angels said, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That doesn't mean peace on earth as though there'll be no more wars between nations. No, it means that we can find peace with God. That there's a way for the souls of men on earth to be at peace with their holy creator. Hallelujah. Why? Because there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Because the Messiah has come to suffer on our behalf and to receive the chastisement so that we can have peace with God. The next verse sums it all up. Verse 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned, everyone, to his own way. We're all, we're all intrinsically selfish. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This one verse is the whole Bible summed up. It's Old Testament, it's New Testament in a nutshell. That we, the creations of God, are like sheep. We wander. It's in our nature. I remember I was in Cuba and uh, we, were, we were walking somewhere and I saw a shepherd with a bunch of sheep and, um, and I happened to walk between where the shepherd was and where the flock of sheep were. They had, they had kind of wandered from. And I walked between them. And as soon as the sheep saw me, they started following me. And I'm like, wait, sheep, stop. <laughs> right? This is what sheep do. They just lock on to anything and they follow it. They wander, right? This is our nature. Try to be a good Muslim, you're still going to go astray. Try to be a good Jew, you're still going to go astray. Try to be a good Hindu, you're still going to go astray. Try to be a good Buddhist, you're still going to go astray. Still, we wander, we sin, we are guilty. There's an old hymn, Come Thou Fount, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It's in our nature. We're sinners. We're guilty. And what we need is not more rules. God help us. Amen? We don't need more rules. All the rules do is prove we can't keep rules. All the rules do is keep is prove we need a Savior. That we need someone to receive our chastisement for us. That someone to take our iniquity for us. All the rules prove is that they're just futile attempts to prove to God that we could never make ourselves good enough that we need a Savior. Amen? I don't need more rules. I need a Savior. How about you? I don't need more rules to break because I need a Savior. Amen? 
Is everybody with me on that? Let me ask the worship team to join me up here. Verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. Who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people. That's us. He was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant, look at this, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Look at that line. Look at that line. My righteous servant shall justify many. The great doctrine of Christianity is justification by faith. Justification is a legal term. It means to declare something not guilty. It was guilty. It had broken the law. But now, a legal authority has declared no more guilt can be ascribed to this, to this soul. Not just as if I never sinned. That's what justification means. Just as if, come on, say it with me. Just as if I never sinned. Justification by faith. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Verse 12, Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he, was poor, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And look at this. And he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. 700 years before Jesus went to the cross, the prophet Isaiah gave this word. The sin of many, our sin, my sin, your sin, all of it was born in his body on the cross. Your guilt was paid for. My guilt was paid for. Your pardon, your pardon was purchased and has been made available to you. But here's the thing about a pardon. A pardon is meaningless unless it's accepted. John 1.12 says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the sons of God, the daughters of God. If you don't receive the pardon, it does you no good. It has to be embraced by faith. Let me read this as I close. During the presidency of Andrew Jackson, a postal clerk named George Wilson robbed a federal payroll from a train. In the process, he killed a guard. The court convicted George Wilson and sentenced him to hang. However, because of public sentiment against capital punishment, a movement sought to secure a presidential pardon for Wilson. After all, it was his first offense. Eventually, President Jackson intervened with a pardon. But to everyone's surprise and amazement, Wilson refused to accept it. He confessed to being guilty and believed he should die. Since this had never happened before, the Supreme Court was asked to rule on whether someone could indeed refuse presidential pardon. Chief Justice John Marshall handed down the court's decision, quote, a pardon 
is a parchment whose only value must be determined by the receiver of the pardon. It has no value apart from that which the receiver gives to it. George Wilson has refused to accept the pardon. We cannot conceive why he would do so, but he has. Therefore, George Wilson must die. Close quote. George Wilson, as punishment for his crime, was hanged. A pardon, declared the Supreme Court, must not only be granted, offered, and provided for, it must also be accepted. What Jesus did on the cross was purchased for each of us forgiveness from sin, acceptance to God, and the assurance of eternal life. It's offered to each of us. But it's only value in our lives is determined by whether or not we receive it. To those he received, to those that received him, to them he gave the right to be called the sons and daughters of God. Let's stand together. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful on this Palm Sunday to remember the suffering Savior. We know He's coming again. Hallelujah. We know the Messiah is going to return. We know the King is coming and He's going to rule the earth. We know that. But right here, right now, we're thankful, Lord, that the Messiah first came as a suffering servant. That our sins could be carried to the cross and that we would not have to suffer the wrath of God. Thank you, Lord, for the cross. Hallelujah. Come on, lift a hand to the Lord and say, Lord, thank you for the cross. Come on, thank the Lord right now. This Palm Sunday, let's, let's thank the Messiah. Hosanna to the King. Hallelujah. The one who saved us. The one who redeemed us. The one who cleansed us from our guilt. Hallelujah. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. But if you're here today, and you have never accepted Jesus Christ into your life as Lord and Savior, I'm going to lead you in a prayer right now, today, where you can do just that, where you can accept Christ into your life and this pardon that He offers to you. You could say, yes, Lord, I want my sins, my guilt to be cleansed and I want Jesus to be my Lord. If that's you, I want you to repeat this prayer with me right now. Let's pray it together. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. Come on, let's pray it together. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. I admit that I'm a sinner. But I believe Jesus Christ, God the Son, died on the cross for my sin. And I believe that on the third day, He rose from the dead. And I believe that He offers me eternal life. Lord Jesus, I receive it. Lord Jesus, I accept eternal life that comes through the name of Jesus. Thank You for saving me. Now be my Lord. I submit my life to You. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's just, let's just worship the Lord. Let's just... Hallelujah. Thank you, God.